peace with God is based on God's removing the hostility from our heart. And that is the only true definition of peace, is if the hostility is gone. Let's talk for just a little bit about charis or grace. I know you've been exposed to the definition of grace, which is God's unmerited favor, which is absolutely true and correct. However, it's a little bit of a pocket definition, a little bit of a brief definition. And I think maybe we would be helped if we took that definition and sort of expanded on it today, sort of fleshed it out a little bit more and talked a little bit more in depth about this concept of grace that Paul means, because what Paul's saying here, as he says, grace and peace to you, he's not just he's not just greeting them. Remember, this is the word of God spoken and written by an apostle. And he's wishing to them the concepts of grace and peace. So it's important for us to understand what Paul is thinking of when he says, I wish you grace and peace. So first of all, grace Uh, God's undeserved favor. But let's talk a little bit more deeply about that. From Albert Martin, I take this definition here, which I think is particularly helpful. Let's look at it together. He defines grace as a disposition in God's heart. Now, what is, first of all, what is a disposition? A disposition is a pre-settled or predefined way or manner of looking at a thing or a person. In other words, I'm predisposed. You even hear the word disposition in there. I'm predisposed. If I have a certain disposition, I'm predisposed to view someone or something in a certain way. If my disposition is a disposition of jokingness, joking, jokefulness, joking, jokal, jovial. There you go. If my disposition is a position of just telling jokes, then I could be expected to react to others with jokes. Why? Because I have this pre-settled, pre-decided position that says, well, here's my typical way of responding in this jovial sort of manner. That's what a disposition means. If my disposition is a disposition of irritability, then you could expect me to react to most situations irritably. Again, that's what disposition means. God also has a disposition. It's a pre-decided, pre-determined, pre-settled way in which he looks upon people and circumstances and events. So Martin says it is a disposition in God's heart that moves him to act. Now, that's what dispositions do. My dispositions move me to act in certain ways. If my disposition is a disposition that favors, oh, I don't know, basketball over football, then that's going to move me to watch basketball on television instead of football, right? That's what dispositions do. They move us to act in certain ways. So God has a disposition in his heart that moves him to act toward sinners 
Now, God's disposition moves him to act towards all sinners in this way that we'll talk about, but particularly towards sinners who are redeemed and converted and are no longer his enemies, but now they have received forgiveness and uh, they are now in union with Christ. But it moves him to act towards sinners with wise and sovereign favor. A disposition in God's heart, a pre-settled, predetermined way of acting towards sinners that moves him to act towards them in ways of wise and sovereign favor. Now, what does favor mean? Favor means preference. Favor means that one thing is preferable over another. Um, we like to watch Gunsmoke, right? Chester on Gunsmoke favors one leg, right? Because he's got the one leg that supposedly doesn't bend at the knee, right? Except when he sits down, then it bends perfectly. But when he's walking, it doesn't bend at all. So what does he do? He favors the one leg. By favoring it, it means he uses the one more than the other. That's what limping is, is you're using one more than you use the other. If I favor sunny summer days over rainy winter days, that means I have a preference towards sunny summer days, which is going to then influence how I act towards them. Or if I favor certain people over others, then that will move me to act in more favorable ways towards some rather than others. That's what favor means. So we've, we've got this disposition. The disposition results in acting certain ways. And in God's heart, the disposition moves him to act in favorable ways, ways of wise, sovereign favor towards sinners. We've talked about the compassion of God. We've talked about how God's heart is defined as one that loves to show mercy and compassion. And so his disposition is one that moves him to act in ways of favor toward sinners. But it goes on. This disposition of favor proceeds entirely from within God's person. And it is in no way conditioned by anything within the object of his favor. Now, that's where it gets hard. Grace is easy to understand until we get to that part. Because all of us understand a disposition that acts favorably towards some or some things. But all of our dispositions of favor, all of them are the result of something within the object that is favored. If it's a person, if your disposition is to favor a certain person or a certain type of person, that is a result of something within the person that you find pleasurable. If your disposition is toward a certain activity, then there's something that's resulting from that activity that then causes you to act favorably or have this disposition of favor towards them. Every disposition of favor or disfavor that we know is the result of something within the object or the person. And that's where God's grace gets hard for us to understand. 
Because God's disposition of favor has nothing to do with the person being favored. It's a position that he has settled upon in his heart to act favorably towards sinners in that way. So we can understand God acting in ways of grace or having a disposition of favor towards people if that favor is a result of something within them, right? Let me put it another way. If you are a good Christian and you uh, are an active part of church and you come to church, you read your Bible, then God favors you, right? Is that a concept that our world finds easy to accept? Yeah, because that fits perfectly with our dispositions of favor. In fact, it's just an extension of our dispositions of favor. However, that's not God's disposition of favor. His disposition of favor has nothing to do with the object of favor. It has everything to do with Him. And that's where we really have to wrestle with God's grace. That's why Jesus told that highly offensive parable about the workers in the vineyard. Some worked in the sun all day. Others worked an hour and they got the same thing. And everybody was so upset about that. And Jesus' point is, that's because you're viewing God's grace just like human grace, which is not like God's grace at all. You see, God is not like a magnet. A magnet is attracted to something because of some quality in the thing it's attracted to. Either the quality of steel or iron, or maybe it's the opposite polarity of another magnet. That's what attracts one magnet to something else. God's not like that. God's not attracted to us because of something in us that makes us attractive to Him. God's not like a magnet. God's more like a a garden hose. You know, you turn on a garden hose and water flows out of it regardless of the container that it's filling, doesn't it? You can be filling up a flower watering pot. You can be filling up a a one gallon jug of milk or milk jug, or you could be just letting it flow out on the ground. The garden hose doesn't care. The garden hose is going to flow regardless of what it's flowing into. That's helpful when we think about God's grace. God's grace flows like the garden hose, not as a result of of a nice container that it's flowing into or something attractive about that container. It just flows because it flows, because it's turned on. And that's like God's grace. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. We read this earlier. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but... Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in union with Christ before the ages began. First John 4, 9, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And we could go on and on. This is something the Bible teaches us emphatically is that God's grace is not conditioned upon the ones receiving the grace. God's grace is an outflowing of his heart, of his disposition. So he wishes this grace to them in this apostolic way, with his apostolic authority. 
He says, grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus be upon you. And this is not just empty words. This is the apostle speaking the words of Jesus with the authority of Jesus saying, the grace of God is coming to you by means of this letter. Wasn't it Jesus who said to the Samaritan woman, John 4, do you believe upon me? Then, then my words are like a well of living water. And then wasn't it Jesus later on in John 14, verse 12, who said, greater things than these you will do? And here comes Paul doing greater things than even Jesus. Jesus brought to us the Father. Jesus showed us the Father. Jesus showed us the grace, the disposition of favor of His Father. Paul takes that and shows that even more because his very words are going to bring to the Ephesians the presence and the power and the grace of God. That's what Paul's going to say. He's going to say, that you would, by the knowledge of these things I'm saying to you, that you would experience the presence of God in a more powerful and tangible way. So he's saying to them, the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, he says, peace, shalom. Now, within this word peace, we translate it as peace, but we know, don't we, that, that peace doesn't quite get it. Within this the word shalom is the idea of tranquility, of comfort, of health, of well-being. Of it's just it, it is a collage of positive concepts that the Hebrews put into this word shalom when they would say shalom. Now John MacArthur says, and I, and I think he's right in saying this, that all of those positive ideas of shalom, all of them were spiritual. So he summarizes it, and I think that he's helpful in this way. He summarizes it by saying shalom really is communicating this idea of spiritual prosperity and spiritual completeness. So think about the idea of prosperity. Think about what prosperity means, prosper. We usually think of it in terms of of material wealth or material possessions, but think of prosperity in the spiritual realm. What prosperity means in the physical realm Transfer that into the spiritual realm. And I think that that comes as close as anything to the idea of shalom. Spiritual completeness and spiritual prosperity. So we think about this idea of peace. And peace is going to be a central theme in the letter to the Ephesians. Three more times Paul is going to to say, he's going to talk about the peace. He's going to say, chapter 2, Jesus is our peace. Now, when Paul's going to talk about peace, as well as when the Bible talks about peace, it talks about peace in a way that I think is different from our idea of peace. When we think of peace, we know that there's three kinds of peace, right? There's peace with one another, there's peace with ourselves, and there's peace with God. We know that. But when we talk about peace, don't we primarily mean peace with others? Isn't that the default way of thinking about peace? When we think about peace in our world, When we think about peace on earth, even the angels, they come and declare peace on earth in Luke chapter 2. Don't we hear that, even if we don't want to, don't we hear that to mean peace among people? Because that's our default. That is not the default of the Bible. The Bible's primary 
foundational, fundamental meaning of peace is peace with God. Outside of union with Christ, we are at war with God. We are God's enemy because we have embraced sin. And apart from union with Christ, we have declared war upon God. That is what Psalm 46.10 is all about. Be still and know that I'm God. That's one of the most misunderstood Bible verses because it doesn't mean meditate and be quiet and, and meditate upon God's godness. We are to do that, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 46. The context of Psalm 46 is clearly the context of God's victory over sin, God's victory over the nations. He talks about his power and how the nations have tried to rebel against him, and but they can't do it. They can't pull it off. And he says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. In other words, stop making war upon me. Put down your weapons of war against your maker and receive him as your sovereign Lord. Be be still and know that I am God. That's what the psalmist means there. Because our primary conflict is conflict with God. And from our conflict with God springs all the other conflicts of life. From our conflict with God springs the conflict with other man. From our conflict with God springs the conflict within ourselves. And so the Bible thinks of peace primarily as peace with our maker. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or we could say through union with our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's this pattern. Grace is the fount that pours forth God's disposition of favor. The result is peace with God, which results in peace with man, chapters 4 through 6, which results with peace with ourself. Uh, an incredible illustration of this. You want an illustration? Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Here's the disciples on this boat in the middle of the storm. That represents enmity with God, war with God. Jesus speaks the words of peace, be still. And then a great calm comes forth. The disciples are afraid. They fear God. Not the storm. They fear God. And now peace reigns in their heart. And then right after that, Jesus goes and lands on the shore. And what do we find there? The man possessed with the demons called Legion. The ultimate example, the ultimate illustration of a, of a man who has no peace with himself, who's at war with himself. And then the Prince of Peace, who now just declared peace between man and God, comes to the shore and he now declares peace between man and man, between man and himself. Casts out the demons, peace reigns. There, there's, there's your illustration right there. But here's Paul's desire for them. His desire, grace flow forth in the person of Jesus and the result is peace, peace primarily with God, peace with yourself, peace with your fellow man. Now our world, and we'll wrap up with this, our world knows peace in a couple of ways. Our world knows peace in the sense of a forced peace or peace by means of power. And we can think of peace between nations in this way. Uh, the stronger nation will exert its power over a weaker nation and this type of peace will result 
where there's no open conflict, but it only exists because the powerful nation won't let the weaker nation do anything. Or the weaker nation is afraid of the powerful nation. Or think of the school bully that beats you up every day at school unless you give him your lunch money. And so you give him your lunch money and he doesn't beat you up. And so there's a type of peace that's peace through power. We talk about peace through power. Every every time our government talks about defense spending, we talk rightly about peace through power. That's one way that the world knows peace is by the stronger one inflicting a type of peace upon the weaker, like France in World War II, when there was a type of peace with Germany, but it wasn't a real peace. It was a peace because France wasn't strong enough to do anything against Germany. Now, the other way that our world knows peace is peace through compromise. And that can exist when maybe nations find this agreement or this this amicability through compromising this or that, or this nation wants that, that nation wants this. And we sort of, we, we come up with these accords, peace accords. And people know that too, right? That's oftentimes how bad marriages look after a lot of years. Bad, bad marriages often look like just a whole bunch of peace agreements, a peace compromises, where this partner's learned not to do this and this partner's learned not to do that. And you sort of learn how to live at peace. Let me suggest neither one of those are biblical peace. Because biblical peace is not based on compromise. Biblical peace is not even based on power, even though God is the powerful one. Biblical peace, peace with God is not based on his power. Peace with God is based on God's removing the hostility from our heart. And that is the only true definition of peace, is if the hostility is gone. And that's what Paul's going to say that God did in Christ. He removed from our hearts our hostility toward our Maker. Our Maker, who just like in the garden, said to us, look, eat of every fruit except one. Then it became our mission to eat that one fruit because we didn't want anybody telling us what to do. We wanted to be God. Why? Because our hearts were hostile to him. And true peace means not compromise. You don't compromise with God. True peace isn't even a total surrender to God's power. True peace is God taking from your heart your enmity towards him or your hostility towards him. So that what results is not compromise or negotiations. What results is the joyful submission to what we were made to be. That's what Paul's saying to us. The joyful submission to what you were made to be. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ. 
through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.